People have absolutely no confidence in Baltimore City Police. They violated their constitutional rights to be secure within their person and their property. It's like the police don't have any respect for us, period. It's a lot of brothers and women, too, that's incarcerated for things they had nothing to do with. Not a panacea. Constitutional policing just means treat everyone equally. Welcome to Truth and Reconciliation, a podcast that recounts the troubled history of law enforcement in Baltimore and the search for solutions to heal from it. A forum for providing a voice for people who have suffered at the hands of law enforcement and to inform and empower others through their experiences. And a show ultimately about holding power accountable through stories, thoughts, and discussion. A podcast about what ails us and sustains us too as we try to cure the violence that plagues the city. I'm Stephen Janis. I'm Taya Graham. And I'm Sean Yose, and we're your host. The intent was to pack the, the room with all of the people that would support the, you know, tough on crime, crime-fighting strategy, and, and kind of condone the practices. Right. But the people actually got wind of it, came and took the place over. You know, it's not, it's not going to be your average white guy. It's not going to be someone in an affluent area. Today, we explore how policies like zero-tolerance mass arrest are bolstered by politics. To do so, we talked to two people who fought against mass arrests and the price they paid for it. Former State Delegate Joel Carter and Public Defender Todd Oppenheim. And through their stories, we examine just how entrenched and politically connected the institution of policing is in Baltimore. All coming up next on Truth and Reconciliation. While the untold toll of zero-tolerance policing on the people is something this show will focus on, the consequences for one of the city's most fiercely independent politicians was also steep. Jill Carter, who is the daughter of civil rights legend Walter P. Carter, was a state delegate when zero-tolerance was in full force, and it was her battle against it that cost her politically. It's that fight and its consequences she's here to discuss with us today. Jill, thank you so much for being here with us. Thanks. Nice to see you all again. So, first, let me ask you this. Why did you decide to take on zero tolerance against the Democratic political establishment? (laughs) Well, you know, at the time, who knew it was going to be against the political establishment? I just saw something wrong. And I felt that by sounding the alarm and explaining it to people or letting people know Mm -hmm. that everybody certainly would would jump on board with we have to fix this. And I was actually shocked and mortified that the opposite was the case. all it was is that I had been um, a, a public defender. I'd been a, a criminal ju- a criminal defense lawyer. Mm-hmm. And I knew that there was supposed to be probable cause to make arrests. And <laughs> right. we were seeing all of these these arrests that weren't based upon that. And so I thought it was kind of a common sense no-brainer that we would stop the practice once people were made aware that it was going on. Now, what kind of price did you pay for bringing this to the attention of the establishment? Well, I'd say I paid a very high price. I actually would say that I my... My potential, as a my potential political career was was severely derailed. Um, as a result of it, I, rather than um, basically, rather than the media, the narrative, the political establishment, um, put putting forth the the proper narrative that this was a human rights violation, and then I was championing, I was on the right side, even now, mm-hmm. that there's been recognition that this was a problem, and that I was on the right side of the issue. Uh, there's been no acknowledgement of that. It's still, you know, true. N- true. there's been no change. There's been no vindication here. But I would say that um, 
I was treated as, and I think largely because I was new to politics, I didn't have adequate community supports at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, It was very easy to isolate, marginalize, denigrate, discredit me, um, call me a liar as was done, Mm -hmm. um, and a person who simply wanted to um, attack the, the then mayor which was nothing could have been further from the truth at the time. Um, now that I've been hurt so severely by him and his policies, um, you know, I, 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 I can say that as, as far as politics, I won't be supporting him in any endeavor. But right. at the time, it wasn't personal. Now, there was a meeting at the War Memorial that was historic. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Wow, that's that's taken me way back. Yeah, yeah. So I remember, again, I was a freshman delegate, and I wrote a letter to the speaker at the time saying that we needed to have um, legislative hearings about these police practices. And rather than honor that request and treat me as a, as a, as a legitimate legislator, um, the speaker gave it to the delegation heads at the time, which were Nathaniel McFadden in the Senate and Salima Marriott in the House, and said, hey, guys, why don't you guys hold your hearing about your issues in the city of Baltimore rather than make it a full state legislative issue, oh, um, legislative inquiry? Yeah. And so it was reduced, I would say, to something at War Memorial. But it was a very interesting thing because what happened was the intent was to pack the the room with all of the people that would support the, you know, tough on crime, crime fighting strategy and and kind of condone the practices. But the people actually got wind of it, came and took the place over. (laughs) And it was like a long, long night of people basically weighing in on on how they've been harmed by the practices. You say that the... um that the War Memorial was intended to be uh, sort of a controlled environment where people would... <laughs> but describe, like, what happened inside there. Describe, you know, because there's that infamous story, I guess, or a story about the mayor, then Colonel Martin O'Malley walking out. But what were people saying that night that, that when, when you were sitting there? What were they saying? What was what was the, the what was it like? Well, it was, for me, it, it felt uh, rewarding because I felt that, you know, I had been saying this was a problem, and here were people saying, yeah, I've been falsely arrested. I've been arrested. I was released with no charges. I was arrested. I lost my house. I lost my job. They were, you know, people were giving testimony about how they were harmed by the practice. And, you know, the the big issue at the time really was not only the human rights violations, illegally arresting people, but the fact that crime was soaring at that time as well. And so the the idea was that the direct at the direction of the then mayor, the police department were focused on unnecessary and illegal arrest rather than actually pursuing actual crime and criminals. And so that was that was a part of the thing. But I remember that the mayor was booed. Um, <laughs> O'Malley was booed. And trust and believe, he really didn't take very kindly to that. And, um, you know... Was he booed like when he went up to the to the podium to talk or did he just boo him in general or what, what happened? To my recollection, so you probably re- recall it more than I do, but he was uh, booed when he when he went to testify. Did he walk out? Yeah, he walked out. I recall that. Talking about that meeting that, that that we're talking about at the War Memorial, fast forward to 2018, um, Director Carter. Um, in your mind, I mean, the name of this podcast is Truth and Reconciliation. Um, in your mind, what would it take for a binding form, if you will, or a binding process to hear the stories of people who had their human rights, their constitutional rights violated during that time? Um, what would it take to have uh, that type of scenario brought forward today 
um, and hear these people's testimonies and hopefully maybe have some sort of reconciliation or reparation, for lack of a better term. What, what, do you, what are your thoughts about that? So interestingly, when I was still in the legislature, um, I had spoken with Cheryl Glenn, the chair of the Black Caucus, and we had made a commitment that the Legislative Black Caucus would take that up and set up that type of a forum. Um, but of course, I've I've left, and you know things have carried on, and I don't believe that has been done, nor is it in the works. Um, I've also thought about how my office, the Office of Civil Rights, could actually um, take the lead or provide a vehicle for that to happen. And so um, it's something that we are giving consideration to. But I have to to share that, in my opinion. In terms of kind of the policymakers and leaders, this consent decree is the kind of the being treated as the be all end all mm. when it comes to police reform and fixing right. things. And so, what I believe would help move this idea along is the public weighing in to the independent monitor and to the um, community liaisons, the Com- community mediation center, which is serving as the community liaisons, and recommending that this has to be a part of. Uh, the reforms that are going through with the consent decree. But I was going to ask you, you know, after the death of Detective Souter, the department went right into what would arguably be unconstitutional practice of locking down Harlem Park. Now, you had a hearing there where you talked to the community. Number one, were you stunned that they went right into an unconstitutional practice? And how did the community feel? I know I'm putting you on the spot. but no, how no, did they- I, I was stunned. I was absolutely stunned. I, I, not only is more than being stunned, you're you're really mortified because it's such a, a hard thing to swallow, a hard pill to swallow, that after the DOJ report, after the consent decree, now we have a consent decree signed. We have an independent monitor in place. We have oversight of the DOJ and oversight of the federal court. And quickly and immediately, such a rare and unconstitutional practice hmm. happened. And there didn't and doesn't seem to be any mechanism in place to stop it. Because as we've heard from the independent monitor, they're just here to monitor and report to the court. They're not here to say, no, uh, you can't do this, Baltimore Police Department. Yeah, they were at the meeting, but they didn't want to say a word. You you handled the meeting, and then the ACLU was there and some other, and the civilian entire civilian review board. But the monitors wouldn't even speak to us, for example. So they're, they're really, what kind of role are they taking here? Well, they're taking the role that they're supposed to take under the court, under the under the decree, and 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 to to make sure that they are um, doing everything that they're supposed to do under the decree and and to satisfy the court. Their job is simply to report to the court, um, to to gather up data and from the BPD and other sources and report back to the court on what's happening and whether or not the the, the paragraphs and and mission of the consent decree are being complied with. I guess my final question would be. After, if you looking back over what happened, would you still fight against zero tolerance like you did, even knowing what would happen? I would to fight you? even harder. You know, um, I, there was a point when it became um, kind of fruitless to me because even in the legislature, when I proposed automatic expungement for illegal arrest or uncharged arrest, and you know, other other kinds of measures that I could do legislatively. The backlash was just so great, and so many people weren't buying it. Like there was still a big narrative throughout the whole city of, "Well, we got to cut down on crime," and right. and and not a whole lot of empathy for people that whose lives were Very were true. taken were destroyed by that. Um, and so I think though, since we know the number, probably over the span of the number of years, probably just under about a million people negatively Very impacted. True. Um, I think now that time has gone on and now that people are waking up to the real severe 
injustices created by members of the Baltimore Police Department and the systemic issues of the department, there may be more amenability to people really hearing and having empathy for these issues, especially when we look at a city where we have all of these unemployable people because of these records and and so many other things. You know, just not only that, I really think the that psychologically it's had a, a negative psychic impact on the city and, and communities as a whole. Yes. Um, this idea that they have no power to push back against injustice. Mm-hmm. You know, there's nothing more horrific than having your liberty taken from you, especially unjustly. Is it your, is it your opinion, um, Director Carter, that um, the uprising of 2015, the death of Freddie Gray, really at the root of it was... It, almost like a cumulative effect, not just of zero tolerance, but just a cumulative effect of disenfranchised, mostly poor, mostly black communities in Baltimore being treated the way we've been treated over these decades. I absolutely believe that was a lot of the impetus for it. Um, but I will say that in the aftermath of the uprising, and now that we have the consent decree, and it's such a long and arduous process to go from the inception of the decree to the ultimate, hopefully, reform, I believe people are just, uh, once again, becoming very apathetic and becoming very tuned out to the idea that we could actually have um, a, a police department that works for the community and it doesn't engage in these kinds of practices. I think that people are are becoming um, very cynical again that anything is going to change because so little has really changed. Even though there's these, these processes put in place, there's been no tangible results that people can see yet or feel. Well, uh, after going over your history with fighting zero tolerance, I can see why your constituents called you the people's champion. I want to thank you so much for joining us, Director Carter. Thanks. Please do have me back, and I appreciate what you're doing. Absolutely. Thank you. Imagine processing and adjudicating 270 cases a day, or imagine trying to house 100,000 prisoners in a facility built for less than half that, and imagine the insanity of arresting one-sixth of the city's population in a year. Well, that was a surreal task the city undertook en route to forcing thousands of people through the criminal justice system for roughly seven years during the height of zero-tolerance policing, and most of them illegally. And our next guest had a front-row seat to all of it. Todd Oppenheim is a longtime public defender who was on the front lines of the criminal justice system serving indigent defendants. He also recently ran a nearly successful campaign for circuit court judge on a progressive platform and has written for New York Times and all sorts of other publications. And it's been, you know, a great voice in this continuing dialogue about criminal justice in the city. So, Todd, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thanks, Tay and Stephen. Yeah. So I wanted, you know, we we were talking a couple days ago just about this, that you were working, were you working in central booking at that time? Or you were you were you were in the public defender's office during yes. the height of zero tolerance. Were you working down at Central Booking? Yes, yes. My primary uh, assignment was there doing bail reviews. Um, so, so pretty much every day. So yeah. what was it like watching? You know, when did you start to realize this was kind of crazy that a police department would actually be arresting so many people? I mean, what? what well, what? A- I would say after the fact because it's all I knew at the time, and mm-hmm. it it was just like um, when. We only had maybe five bail reviews to handle on a certain day. That that felt uh, like a reprieve. But mm-hmm. a normal day would be, you know, between 10 to 12 attorneys, each of us handling 8 to 10, sometimes 15 or 20 bail reviews. And, th- and then forget about it. If it's a, a, a Monday or, God forbid, a holiday weekend, 
um, because court doesn't sit, mm-hmm. you know, on off days. So, so what kind of arrests were you, were you seeing? I mean, notoriously, zero tolerance was about arresting people for minor things. W- what were you seeing in a lot of your cases, and what kind of like constitutionality were you talking about? Tons of street stop scenarios that ended up with loitering charges, trespassing charges. Tres- trespassing was probably the the most prevalent. It still happens, but uh, specifically in public housing areas. Um, other things where people get um, pulled up on the street for public urination, um, minor violations on the MTA if you don't have a ticket and uh, you're, you're boarding there. Mm-hmm. They're all kind of pretextual uh, sort of vehicles, if you will, yeah. to, to kind of get to bigger things. But most of the time, there aren't bigger things and people are getting harassed for no reason. Um, so. Were, were, this, were these people from Roland Park, or was this from a different part of the Not city? exactly. I mean, and so what kind of people were ending up in this sort of turnstile of justice where they were being forced in the criminal justice system? What, what, what was like the profile, the average profile of your clients? Well, it's then? definitely African-American, mm-hmm. and I would say predominantly young men, but um, it, it ranges. I mean, there were plenty of older guys that we would represent, and... It would get to the point where people who were familiar with the police would be frequent targets, so that might not be younger guys, but then younger guys would be profiled because of the way they looked. Um, But typically not people that look like myself. You know, it's not going to be your average white guy. It's not going to be someone in an affluent area. Um, So what did this processing look like? Someone would be picked up, let's say, for public urination or expectorating or loitering. I heard there was something that happened called abated by arrest. mm -hmm. Can Can you explain what that is? We would see them because we were wandering through the jail in certain areas, but those are people that we wouldn't have to represent for bear reviews, but basically they'd be picked up and walked through, literally. So it was that, called a walkthrough, literally. It was a walkthrough. Yeah, literally. They, so, so they were taken off the streets, sometimes spending you know a day or two waiting to see a commissioner mm-hmm. because the commissioner is the first step in the bail process. And when the commissioner would get a hold of it, that's kind of where the state has to decide you know, either uh, whether they're going to put up or shut up and actually charge a case. And they kind of folded at that point mm-hmm. and conceded that mm-hmm. the whole thing was ridiculous or that they just didn't want that that going on record, you know, in a court file somewhere. You know, somebody has to write, write a report about it. And most of mm-hmm. it reads pretty ridiculously. Now, this name of this podcast is Truth and Reconciliation. And I think one of the reasons we wanted to focus somewhat on zero tolerance is because we don't feel like anyone's really taken stock of the effect. Now, you're a person who has seen it up close how it has affected your clients. And, you know, what would you tell people who maybe not might not understand what kind of psychological effect arresting 300 people a day or 100,000 people a year would have on a community of people? It's, it's so many levels. First of all, the, the trust and the rapport between the, the law enforcement community and, and, and residents is totally destroyed. Um, so for them to rely on the police to protect their community, for them to rely on the police uh, to actually be helpful in a prosecution of a case. It's not there anymore. Um, And then there's a fear generated by it too, which kind of, you don't want to say that that's the impetus for crime itself, but but it doesn't create safe neighborhoods, you know, by the nature of it. The other impact is that it's interesting to do bail reviews now or, or to just when I'm trying to negotiate a case and looking at my client's record and you see 
sometimes with older guys who were younger during the zero tolerance era of the early aughts or whatever, you know, 2004, 2005, 2003. Um, and you see charges from that time. And you'll see a list of, of petty drug offenses or, or these, you know, minor uh, nuisance crimes. They may be expungible now, but everybody doesn't have the wherewithal to do that. Mm-hmm. Right. But, right. you know, I see it and I see the time frame and I wonder, you know, all of that gets factored into is is on this new case, are they going to be held in jail? What does a judge really think of it? Does a judge have the perception that most of the community does about the policing at that time? And is it really going to be held against them on this new issue that comes up? So you ask, you raise an interesting point that Tay and I have talked about a lot, which is the violence that we've seen and the sustained violence kind of makes sense when you when you think about how disruptive that was. If you think about 100,000 people, people going to jail who didn't belong there, it's a violent act that might have, is there is there some sense in your mind that might have perpetuated some of the dysfunction that a lot of people cite as a cause for violence continuing in this city? I, th- I think definitely. I think now that we're seeing future generations of people that were repeatedly locked up during that period who were absent parents or loved ones Mm -hmm. or saw that as the norm in their society. I mean, they come to expect it and and now they're involved in that kind of lifestyle. Well, and, you know, and so going through that experience, how did it affect? So you said you came in and you're like, you didn't know anything differently. Uh, how long did it take you to think, wow, this is insane? Or uh, if you ever did think that, was there ever a point where you were like, this can't be happening? This is not criminal justice that I, I didn't become a lawyer to deal with this or to, to be in a system like this? I, it, well, it, it always feels good to, to help people. So it, th- there was plenty of work to be done to help. So that was there was never a shortage of that. I would say recently, especially last year, it really uh, opened my eyes because not only did we have zero tolerance, it was like this perfect storm of uh, bail um, and mm-hmm. cash bail and excessive bail coming to a head in those in the early aught years. Mm-hmm. So not only were people being locked up for minor offenses, if they're not walked through, they're going to be held on bails that they couldn't afford. And we're finally moving towards reform, specifically in that area. I, I still have gripes with what yeah. they're doing with more serious cases, but right. now now you really can see th- the people that are not being held pretrial and all the stuff that was going before, which was yeah. infinitely more with more arrests. So you're saying that people who are get arrested for Tay is one of the fa- one of Tay's favorites is expectorate or, right. or or drinking a beer would actually get would actually get bail. They would be given a bail. Is that what you're saying? It it depends. Mm-hmm. Sometimes yes. Sometimes. But during the during the odds during the high, I would zero say dollars. yes. Yeah, so th- that's incredible. It it was, and it it was at the point where we established there was a courtroom in the jail, which has since been since been converted to our public defender's office, a mm-hmm. pretty much windowless, uh, uh, kind of like depressing gray concrete mess. Mm-hmm. Um, but we actually could do the bail reviews there, and a judge would would come there. They don't want to come to the jail and do that anymore, but they would also bring in cases early recognizing that there was this this whole list of, of minor offenses that people were being held on and that they shouldn't wait 30 days, you know, sitting in jail, and they'd make them an offer that they couldn't refuse. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it wasn't a court to get your case dismissed. It was to take a plea and either get a time served initially of a couple days or an immediate probation so that you didn't have to sit. And, mm-hmm. and I mean, we're talking about ridiculous 
bail hearings, they're not necessarily excessive, but excessive relative to those folks, right. like a hundred bucks. Right. You know, and and you know, a homeless person can't afford that. Right. And right. so now there has been reform. You know, the, the court of appeals created a rule that said judges have to take into account the um, you know financial situation. Do you, do you think that that has alleviated? Is that working? Um, do you feel like it's an effective reform and that it's somewhat lessening the burden on people who can't afford to, to pay bail? For minor offenses, yes. And, mm-hmm. and, and the effect is definitely it's apparent because people are not being held on these minor charges anymore. Um, they're coming into court on the street. A lot of drug cases, even felony drug cases, people are released pretrial. There's really a recognition of obvious nonviolent offenses. But then we get to the questionable stuff that I deal with in felonies where the allegations are sometimes serious, but you've got people without records. And then many times where the allegations are coming from, not necessarily the police, but from other citizens that don't have a lot of basis, judges still don't want to give us credence from the outset, and they assume that the charges are true. So they'll hold people without bail, and there is no middle ground anymore. So they see it as a, as a violent offense or a danger, mm-hmm. potential danger that you're going to be held. One more last question before we let you go. You know, the gun trace task force scandal has been huge. How do you think that was able to perpetuate? I mean, I know people in the public defender's office were talking about um, Daniel Herschel and other people and identifying officers. How on earth do you think, I mean, I'm not saying that I don't understand, but what do you think allowed uh, a gun trace task force to operate with such impunity in the criminal justice system? It's kind of going on right now in the legislature. It's this it's this drumbeat of uh, tough on crime. And it was kind of an, an under-the-table under thing, a, 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 an unspoken kind of um, edict that these guys could go out there and get guns on th- off the street. And I think because they were able to produce results, so-called, you know, I'm, yeah, I'm, stats. I'm, I'm, I'm making air quotes yes. here, <laughs> results, like the guns were coming from somewhere that they could justify their existence and then and then the higher-ups would, would look the other way. Right. And it didn't matter what the means were as long as the ends were coming in. Mm. And it was so blatant that prosecutors knew it. The defense, we knew it. Right. Our, our you clients guys were, were fighting it in court a lot of times. Yeah. There was a big fight over, over personnel records, over, over disciplinary records on one officer, not one of these officers. But there were these fights, and, you know, they would always fight you, and the judges never seemed to side with you. No. Yeah. No. So, so there's no checks and balances at this point. No. Yeah. But it seems like, I mean, we're definitely moving to a better place now. Yeah. It's, it's just that there's always something to take it pl- its place. You know, from zero tolerance, we moved away from that and then came up with these knocker units. And, right. And, and, and you know, set. yeah, the violent crimes impact division. It, right. It's always got Sorry. a new aim, yeah. mm-hmm. a new iteration. Now, now it's district action teams, district right? Action. Sure. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. That's, yeah. Well, listen, uh, by the way, you're going to run for judge again? <laughs> no comment. Okay. Right. <laughs> Not this well, time. Todd Avenheim, we appreciate what you're doing. We appreciate your perspective Absolutely. on the front lines. And thank you for coming on, um, you know, our show. And what you're doing is extremely important, too. So I'll throw it back on you guys. There's not too many news outlets like YPR, like Real News, and like you two that really want to probe these issues. It's Mm -hmm. it's great to get beneath the surface. We appreciate that. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you so much. We'll see you soon. What did I do? What did I say? Thank you for joining us for Truth and Reconciliation. 
Truth and Reconciliation is produced by Taya Graham, Stephen Janis, and Sean Yost for Ace Spectrum Productions. The show is edited by Stephen Janis. Thank you to our engineer, Sienna Greaves. Please make sure to join us for our next podcast and contact us on Facebook and Twitter if you want to recommend a topic for us to discuss. I'm Stephen Janis. I'm Sean Yost. And I'm Taya Graham. Thank you so much for joining us on Truth and Reconciliation.